Let's pray, shall we, before coming to our word and, and hearing it from the Lord. Heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning just being able to hear uh, of all those words of shun that we've received through, through your work, Father, through what you've done. Um, just that reality that we were undeserving. In fact, we deserve something totally different to the Shun words. And yet you gave them to us because you loved us. And this morning, Lord, I know that we will hear more of your work, more of what you are doing, more of what you have done, and where we now stand before you. Father, I pray that these would not just be words, just like those ones Bob spoke on, but, Lord, they would become our reality and our life, a knowledge of what you have done, our faith, Lord, and our security. Heavenly Father, um, there are no words uh, that I can offer that will bring this about if you are not present, that will bring us to a knowledge of this that means anything. We pray, Lord knowing that you delight to make yourself known to your people, that you would reveal your word to us this morning. If we are here with hard hearts, Lord, with blocked ears, Father, that you would just give us a reprieve for a moment from our own sin to be able to see you and hear you and be filled up once again. Lord, to be able to sing your praises for the rest of this week, not just here this morning. Yeah, give us the ears to be able to hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, David and Goliath is one of the more famous stories. Don't worry, I haven't got my chapters confused. Um, I know John preached about that last week. It is a message and a story that's actually quite well known, really. Any, I think if you asked anyone in the West, at least, they would be able to give you some version of David and Goliath. Uh, not too long ago, I listened to a Hamish and Andy podcast where they spoke about David and Goliath. And from their point of view, David was a short, good-looking and quite muscular shepherd boy who was known uh, for going to battle with a giant. And he was known particularly for two things. One, for a cracking shot with a sling and two, because he called his shot before he did it. Uh, really, from sportsman kind of perspective, he was able to say to Israel, hey, boys, watch this. Uh, and then he did it. The best shot uh, with a sling that has ever been seen. But you notice something, and in fact, you will have noticed it as well, there's something missing from Hamish and Andy's story of David and Goliath. Where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? It was all about David, all about what he did to Goliath and how amazing he was. But where was the Lord? Forgotten. But we listen to David's words when he's speaking to Saul about to step into that battle. We listen uh, for who he attributes that battle and the action of it to. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the Philistines. And David says it again, then before Goliath. Listen, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, 
the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike your head from your shoulders. For the Lord, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. Now David was the man the prophet Samuel described as having a heart uh, after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart. David didn't forget the Lord. He knew and had faith in this. The Lord delivers. It's not a word that ends with shun, but it is an action of the Lord. He delivers. The Lord delivers. It wasn't just about David. It wasn't about his throw. It wasn't about Goliath. It was just about him, the Lord. Now, Hamish and Andy are not the only ones that forget about the Lord in this life, are they? We do as well. When the path ahead of us looks difficult, when we face opposition from Satan, from our own sin, from difficult circumstances in life, we get caught up in the impossibility of the situation. Lost in fear and doubt and anxieties and often turn to planning or scheming our own minds and our own strength, or we just break because we forget the Lord. We forget he is the one that delivers. And in a moment of honesty, as I prepared for this very message, I was caught up in the story and the going back and forth between David and Saul. They're coming and they're going, what they did that was good and what they did that was bad. And I had a lovely list that I could have given us, had it written out, a list for us to be more like David and less like Saul, to overcome the difficulties of life. But I forgot the main character. I'd forgotten the Lord. I didn't see that this story, just like with David and Goliath, was not about what people do. It was about what the Lord does and has done. There is no hope in our worries, no escape from our fears, no success in our plans, but the Lord delivers his people from their fears. And we see this in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, in the Lord's constant dealing with David and Saul. The moment David has finished his battle with Goliath, he is in fact thrust into a position that is impossible. He is the future He is anointed now as the future king of Israel. He's away from his family and everything that's everyone that supported him and is surrounded by the current ruling family. Saul and his family are all potential opponents. As David will soon take their throne from them. What hope is there really for David's survival of this situation? He should be fearful, discouraged when looking at everything that surrounds him and where he needs knows he needs to go. He should be doubting God's calling. At the least, we would expect him to start planning and scheming and start unfolding some Game of Thrones plan to take over the kingdom. 
to have a savvy political game, but he doesn't do any of this. We actually see very little of David in this chapter. He moves around, but he's not the focus. He isn't the major player in actually bringing about David's kingdom. The Lord is. Right from the beginning of chapter 18, the Lord does an amazing work by bringing something quite astonishing into David's life. He brings in love, the love of Jonathan. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his very own soul. Now, Jonathan was the son of the king. When Saul died, he was going to be the one that inherits the kingdom. It was his right and his due. But Jonathan's heart instead is so turned towards David that he makes a covenant with him. And he gives him his royal robe, his armor, his sword, his bow and his belt, all the symbols of his inheritance and his position. And in doing so, hands the future of the kingdom to David willingly. Now, this man should have found David to be a great threat to his future. Even now, before he knows of David's anointing, he should have at least tried to manipulate him to put his own position into a more secure place, just like Saul does. Jonathan should have been David's enemy and could have been David's enemy. But instead... Instead, we see him, instead of being a threat, instead of manipulating, he loves him as his own soul and gives up his entitlement willingly. Jonathan goes from being a threat to a brother. The Lord's turning of enemies into loved ones. It doesn't just stop with Jonathan either doesn't stop with Saul's son, but God also delivers to David Saul's daughter, whose name gets pronounced a multitude of ways. How did you call it, Nathan? Michal. Michal. I'm going to go, I'll go with that. Michal, <clears throat> who is also described as to love David, and we'll see some more of that later. Furthermore, the people grow to love David through chapter 18. They love him according to the Lord's plans. All the plans Saul has intended to secretly kill David that take place. He continues to throw David into battle after battle after battle, hoping that he will die. And he comes out with it only with more and more success and the people love him for it. He starts off in verse 5 as being described as accepted by the people and Saul's servants. And then by the end of the chapter, he is described as loved by all of Israel and Judah, and Saul's servants held him in high esteem. More potential enemies being turned into people that love him instead. The Lord is delivering David from his enemies by turning their hearts to love. God is already building David up, establishing him in a position to one day be king over them and to deliver the kingdom to David. Not a kingdom built on manipulation or fear or insecurity, but love. This is the type of the kingdom that the Lord brings about. This is his kingdom, which I think we are familiar with. 
but the Lord is not done with his good gifts to David. As we know from the David and Goliath story, the Philistines are the current thorn in Israel's side. And again and again and again in chapter 18, David is described as going out to battle with this persistent foe. First as a commander or general of the men of war, later as a captain over a thousand. And then again, when David collects 200 Philistine foreskins as a bride price for Saul's daughter to marrying Michal. The chapter is filled with David going out to war. John Woodhouse, in his commentary on 1 Samuel, speaks of the odds. The odds of David surviving this many encounters with the enemy. If you go to war often enough, you will be killed. That's how war works. Yet David appears to defy the odds. Because he doesn't just keep going out to war, he keeps coming back in. And the people see it. Now what's his secret? Was he incredibly deft with the sword, agile on his feet? Did he have a sharp mind? The scripture tells us his secret. The Lord was with him. It's how he survived. It's how he kept having victory. He delivered David from harm. And he delivered the enemy into his hands with the Lord with him. David didn't just escape to live another day and come back to Jerusalem with his tail between his legs. He came back alive and victorious over his enemies. Now, there's no further detail provided here about these battles. They are quite small in their mentioning, but there's no more detail needed. The critical aspect of David's success in battle is this, that the Lord was present with him. Nothing else is needed. Nothing has really changed for David, has it? Not since his battle with Goliath. His beliefs have not moved on since that battle. He's still saying the same thing day in and day out. The Lord is my deliverer. This is his battle. How essential it is that you and I do not move away from this truth in our own lives. No matter how many battles we go out to, how big the enemy is or how long it could take, it is the Lord that delivers. As incredible as it is to see the Lord delivering David from his enemy, the Philistines, it's really nothing compared to what he's being delivered from with comparison, uh, compared to Saul in these chapters. As we've said, all of the success against the Philistines brings David a great deal of love and affection. The people love him. He is a hero. Jonathan, Saul's own son, loves him like his own soul, giving up all rights and claims to the future kingdom. His daughter loves him and is willing to risk a great deal. But not Saul. He's the only one. Well, Saul seems to have an affection for, for David at the beginning. He doesn't want to let him go, not go and refuses to allow him to return to his family. Now, why would you let go of a man that can bring down a giant with a couple of rocks? 
Saul's a great fan. It's going to help Saul in his own glory, in securing himself in the kingdom. That is, until they return to Jerusalem. And the women of the city meet them at the gate, dancing and singing. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And if you remember, only a few chapters ago, when Jonathan defeated the Philistines, Saul claimed Jonathan's victory as his own to make himself more secure. And Saul doesn't even get the chance this time. David's story has gone ahead of them. And Saul, his insecurities begin to show and he begins to already fear the threat that David is posing to them. I wonder if you have ever felt threatened that someone was going to take away something that was precious to you. I was a groomsman in a friend's wedding and it was my job to take a bridesmaid down the aisle and back and to ladder at the reception to have a dance. And everything was fine. It was a lovely wedding filled with smiles, as you would expect, from everyone except one person, her boyfriend. His mouth was a tight line of frustration and he had darkness behind his eyes. For some reason, the man believed that the mere touch of my arm and the sight of my uncoordinated dance moves would work a powerful spell (laughs) upon his girlfriend and she would throw him away for this stud. (laughs) (laughs) Now, his attitude was really quite a compliment, wasn't it? (laughs) Believe it or not, and this is to prove that I didn't make this story up, he came to me and apologised after the reception for the dirty looks he'd been giving me (laughs) because he saw me as a threat. And now that he had spoken to me a little, he realised that that was totally ridiculous, (laughs) which was less of a compliment. (laughs) I think many of us are familiar with the feeling of being threatened of having something that we delight in being taken away, even if it's over something ridiculous. What we have, those precious things, we become irrational when we fear we're going to lose them. For Saul, the very next day after entering into the city, a distressing spirit from God came upon him and he prophesied. And Saul saw something that moved him away, even from being threatened by David, to now being described as being afraid of him. Afraid of him to the extent that he tried not just once, but twice to kill David in the privacy of his own rooms by pinning him to the wall with a spear. Now David escaped both times, but... We are left wondering, what is it that this distressed spirit revealed to Saul to bring him to such a point that he would kill the guy that was going to help him? And we see it in 18 verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. The Lord was with David and Saul knew what this meant. 
David was not just a man of Judah or someone favoured by God or skilled at warfare. He wasn't just lucky. It was so much worse than that for Saul. If the Lord was with David, David was the future king of Israel. Saul had been told that by God. David was chosen. And in that revelation, David no longer was no longer an irrational threat. He was going to take it all, everything he loved. And Saul was afraid, afraid of David and afraid of the presence of the Lord working against him, afraid of the power of the Lord to deliver David and deliver the kingdom to him. And here we see that Saul begins to act with greater and greater desperation as the story unfolds. He starts with secret schemes and plans. He throws David into battle after battle against the Philistines, relying on the odds to knock David off. But the Lord is with David. And David doesn't just survive the battle, but thrives. And the people and the officers love him more. And so David, Saul grows more afraid. So he tries to marry David to one of his daughters and sets a bride price that is so steep in blood that it will surely mean that David is killed. But the Lord is with David and he returns not with 100 foreskins but 200. And he marries a woman that loves him, the daughter that delights in him and has no desire to be a part of Saul's political machinations against David. So by the end of 18, Saul is described no longer as threatened or afraid, but is greatly afraid of David. And he becomes his enemy continually. And we see at the change of 18 to 19, that the Philistines are no longer the enemy that's on, on paper. Saul is. The anointed king has become their enemy. And David is only on the rise. His name, it says, becomes highly esteemed. Does Saul stop here? Does he realise the battle is lost? If only he was so wise. He seems to become almost like a cornered animal. His hair wild and his teeth bared. And you can see the whites around his eyes because Saul abandons all attempts for secretly killing David and now begins to openly speak of his plans of murder with the people around him. Four times in chapter 19 he attempts to kill David as we read the first time with Jonathan, the second time with the daughter Michal, the third with messengers sent to retrieve him from Naoth Ramah, And the fourth, when Saul himself travelled there to do the job himself. Four times Saul moved against David in chapter 19 openly and with hostility. A king against what is now someone that has nothing. He's on the run. And four times the deliverance of the Lord is seen. Though each time in a totally different way. We see the Lord delivered David through the loved ones, in fact, that, Saul has, that the Lord has already put in David's life. Jonathan and Michal both warned David of their father's plans 
and in doing so, they risk themselves before Saul's wrath. We see the Lord deliver David in establishing peace between enemies. When Jonathan speaks to Saul, he does so with godly wisdom. He says, let not the king do what is wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, but what he has done has has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistines. The Lord won a great victory for Israel. You saw it and were glad. Why then do you wrong, uh, do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? And Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. Assuredly, as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. And that says that David returned back to a relationship with Saul, back to the way it was. Peace between enemies. Although it doesn't last long. But can you imagine that? Is there anything the Lord cannot do? We see the Lord deliver David through escape. When Michal saw the men Saul had ordered to watch the house and wait for David to emerge so that they could kill him, she warned him and helped him escape, buying him time to flee by placing an idol in his bed with goat's hair upon it to make it look as if he was sick in bed. And we see again another deliverance, but this time not through the hands of men or the Lord working through people, but through just the presence of the Spirit coming upon the enemies. As Saul's men chased David down to Ramah and later Saul himself, the Spirit of God fell upon them. And instead of achieving their plans and their schemes against the anointed one of God, they end up serving him. And it's almost comical that anyone would act against God's anointed and think that they would succeed when everything that seems to be thrown at David because the Lord is with him is turned towards David to serve the Lord. Listen to this from Psalm chapter 2, something I think we are familiar with. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The Lord laughs at the kings of earth, plotting against him and his anointed. The method by which the Lord delivers cannot be predicted or presumed. We can often find ourselves calling out to the Lord for help. We often find ourselves calling out to the Lord for help. Expecting, though, a certain way of action from him. A certain response. But he uses many means to deliver his people from trouble. As we've seen even with these two chapters from 1 Samuel. 
Perhaps he will give us overwhelming victory over our trouble, like with the Philistines. Moving on to greater and greater success. Or perhaps the intervention of others in our lives on our behalf as the loved ones that the Lord gives into David's life do. Maybe it is escape. He allows us to escape for a time from harm. Maybe it is peace between enemies or enemies becoming loved ones or something different and something new because he is the Lord and there is nothing that he cannot do for those that are his people. There is nothing outside his power. When my kids wake up in the night afraid and worried over a nightmare or a sound in the night, my wife and I answer the same way, or we try to every time, to turn, to turn them to the Lord, to turn to prayer. We sit and we pray, Lord, you are powerful. You are more powerful than anything else in this world, more powerful than nightmares more powerful than our fears of thunder and wind and the noises of the night. And you love us so much that you gave your son to die on a cross for us. You are the one, the only one that can help us not to be afraid. The only one that can deliver us, help us to trust you and to sleep in peace. Our hope is not in how the deliverance is done, but in who is doing it. In the God who does it. And this is the hope that David holds on to throughout these chapters, amidst all the battles with the Philistines and the attempts on his life by Saul, and even the raging success and the adoration that he receives from the people. And those who love him around him, he doesn't waver from knowing the Lord is the one who delivers. David was called by Samuel in 1 Samuel 13, a man after God's own heart. And he shows this heart by trusting in God to deliver him to his calling. At this stage, David has already been anointed by Samuel to become the future king of Israel. It happened when he was a shepherd boy. But now after Goliath and even after all the success he has had and the love of the people, he doesn't push his timing upon God's plans. He doesn't demand to be king and challenge Saul, even when it becomes obvious to those around him that Saul is losing the plot. He waits for the Lord to deliver the kingdom that he has promised. He places his faith in God's timing, in God's deliverance. Throughout all the, uh, the persecution at Saul's hand, he remains silent and he doesn't begin to scheme and plan himself, at least not in this stage. He doesn't fear for the future. He places his trust in the Lord to deliver him. You know, it took me 10 years to answer my call to ministry. 
from the first time that I thought I heard it. Ten years to trust God, to to begin the path of being a pastor. Ten years from hearing that call to saying yes. And it was only at the end that I realized really what was stopping me. I remember reading a book by Carson on a totally unrelated topic. And it struck me. I was afraid. I was afraid of what was going to happen if everything went wrong. If I, if I put, if I followed the Lord, I was afraid of what was going, we were going to come up against and what was going to happen when I failed. I was afraid of failing essays, absolutely. Exams, I was afraid of failing my family. And I was afraid of failing myself and being seen as a failure. That one probably most of all. And the same night in prayer, I came to know that my security and my success in life was never going to come from my own hands. I wasn't going to ever be able to fulfill God's call, not ever. And I didn't need to because God is the one that delivers. He brings about his calling. If the Lord is not the one that is doing the delivering, they aren't calls, they're wishful thinking. Now, that didn't mean that I was going to achieve the best grades. I can tell you that was the case. And it didn't mean that we were always going to have excess money in the bank. In fact, I failed Greek in the first semester and never returned. I ended up with a different degree than I expected and a pastor in a church that I didn't expect. But in all of that, the Lord delivered me from my fear and brought me to my calling. He brought me to the future that he intended rather than the one that I may have actually aimed for. And it is better than I would have planned. But waiting on the Lord isn't easy. As we have seen, his deliverance doesn't always work out the way that we would expect or in the timing that we would want. But it is true. It is perfect and a wonderful deliverance. David endured being thrown into battle after battle, scheme after scheme, waiting on the Lord to bring about the promise to be made king. He trusted God because he knew that God's timing and his plans are perfect and his own wouldn't get him anywhere. Just look at where David is by the end of this chapter. Yes, he's on the run from the king, but he is beloved for his wisdom and character by all of Israel and Judah. The Lord makes him wait to be sure, but the Lord is establishing him in his kingship. He is preparing everything for him. Everything is ready, getting ready for David. And it is likely that David didn't even notice half of what God was doing for him in delivering things to him, keeping him safe and preparing him. We often wonder where the Lord is when we call out to him in fear and worry. Where is the deliverance, Lord? Where are you? How long? 
And we feel the more because the answer is not immediate, but he is at work often in ways that we do not understand or comprehend. It's for this reason that we often forget him because he's working in ways that we don't grasp. And we get caught up in those worries and the fears for the future, our hopes for something better and forget the Lord in all of it. But like David, we must not forget. The Lord is our deliverer. David will face greater opponents to his calling as God's anointed king in the future. He will face opponents formed from his own sinful desires as well as those that are physical. He will face opposition from Satan at work in his enemies and the lies that he gives to David to believe in. He will face circumstances that look even more impossible than those that we have read today. Yet through it all, even when David stumbles, the Lord continues to deliver him to his calling. Now we have been called as God's people. We are called to holiness. We are called to obedience, to work, to salvation. On top of these things, some of us have experienced more explicit calls to action in the ministry. These calls are wonderful invitations from God to join with him in his work and in him and who he is. But like David, we face opposition that would stop us from realizing the call. The opposition is real. It is there and is happening to all of us. Satan is actively opposed to us. The sin still present in our bodies is active in its struggle. And on top of it all, life just seems to throw additional curveballs. All of which can leave us wondering, fearful and doubtful, that we will ever realize God's call to being with him. Yet the Lord delivers his people from everything that opposes his call upon them. The Lord makes a way. Consider just some of the other well-known stories of the Bible. Jonah. Jonah had a call and a struggle within himself. He did not want to obey the call the Lord placed on his life. And the Lord sent storms and a giant fish to live in for three days. Daniel was called to obedience in Babylon. Satan used evil men to place him and throw him in a den of lions. And he walked out the morning fit and whole. We were called to be holy and live for the Lord, but we sinned and death loomed over us. But the Lord delivered us from the sting of death through Jesus' victory on the cross. It's not just a work that he is doing or has done. It's a work he has, sorry, <laughs> is doing and will do, but has done. John quoted from Romans 8.37 last week. In all these things, we have been made more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is our deliverer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word this morning. If we have heard anything that is good, that is right, that is true, that is honouring, Lord, it is from you. And so we give thanks. Lord, I think about all the things in our lives that we know that we have been delivered from, the things that I know that I have been delivered from. And Lord cannot help but be in awe. But then to think about all the things that you've been doing without me being aware of it. Lord, the the sin that you have kept me from. Father, the death that you have overcome, the the opponents that I may have faced, Lord, that I never even knew. Who did you turn into a brother rather than someone that would work against me? Who did you turn into someone that loves? What escapes did you give me? Heavenly Father, we give thanks for all your work in delivering us continually and onwardly. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we continue to sing, but as we also leave, Even as we pray, Lord, that we would continue to be mindful as David was mindful and not forget that you are at work for your people, saving them. And that nothing is impossible for you. I pray that we would trust you and that you would become so big in our minds, Father, that we would not be shaken by having to wait that we would not become so concerned that we would begin to scheme and plan ourselves, but that we would trust and have faith in you. That we would not see anything as impossible for our God who loves us. Heavenly Father, help us to have fixed in our minds clearly that you are our deliverer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.